This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 16. Stock Market Bubbles Narratives about stock market bubbles are stories about excitement and risk-taking, and about relatively wealthy people who buy and sell securities. Like the real estate narratives discussed in Chapter 15, narratives about stock market bubbles are driven by social comparison. Because they are fueled by psychology, and because stock prices are related to general confidence, these narratives also relate to the confidence and panic narratives presented in Chapter 10. But, the stock market is different from the economy as a whole. Therefore, the narratives that create and sustain stock market bubbles constitute another distinct constellation of narratives, with a different path and different sources of contagion. A narrative is born. The word crash quickly became associated with the one-day stock market drop on October 28th of 1929, along with a slightly smaller drop on October 29th, and it became inextricably linked to the Great Depression that followed. Crash calls to mind reckless or drunk drivers, or race cars pushing their limits, and the crash narrative typically implies that a period of exceptional boom of crazy optimism and maybe even reckless and immoral behavior preceded the crash. The narrative of human folly, expressed in a stock market boom followed by a horrendous stock market crash, is still very much with us today. The atmosphere of speculation in the 1920s was unsurprisingly associated with a technological advancement, the trans-lux movie Ticker, also called the Ticker Projector. First mentioned in the news in 1925 and proliferating after that in brokerages, clubs, and bars, the ticker projector was invented amidst the public excitement about the stock market. This projector showed the latest trades in the stock market on a large screen, large enough to be seen by a substantial audience. Watching the information displayed on the projector was like watching a movie, or, as we would say today, like watching a large flat-screen television. A crowd could gather at one of the tickers, thus encouraging the contagion of stock market stories. According to an Associated Press account in 1928, the movie ticker brought in, quote, wild trading, saying, This has whetted the speculative appetite of thousands and cheated many new ones. The thrill of seeing one's stock quoted at advancing prices on a heavy turnover being akin to that of the racetrack devo devotee who sees the horse on which he has placed his bet come thundering down the home stretch in advance of the field. End quote. The persistence of this narrative helps explain the public fascination in subsequent decades, and even today, with domestic stock price indexes which the news media display constantly. People widely believe that the stock market is a fundamental indicator of the economy's vitality. The word crash was not commonly attached to stock market movements before 1929, and the new use of the word became a name for a different view of the economy, that economic growth depends heavily on the performance of the overall stock market, so that the stock price indexes are taken as oracles. 
the phrase boom and crash had been popular in the 19th century, but it was used more often to refer to cannons firing, storm waves beating upon the shore, or even Richard Wagner's music. After 1929, boom and crash went viral and usually described the stock market. Crash, the breaking point between speculative excess and hopelessness. Economists still puzzle over the stock market crash of October 28th of 1929, a date on which no sudden important news occurred other than the crash itself. Just as baffling, although less discussed, is the exponential growth of stock values over most of the decade of the 1920s that preceded it. The year 1929 saw the most dramatic upswing ever, with more than a five-fold increase between December of 1920 and September of 1929. By June of 1932, the value of the market had fallen back down to below its December of 1920 level. Earnings per share also increased dramatically over the 1920s, but the puzzle is why the stock market responded so heavily to these earnings increases. It is more normal for the stock market to react hesitantly to such upswings in earnings, which are exceptionally volatile from year to year, and could even fall to zero in a single year. But surely, the stock market should not fall to zero because of one bad year nor, normally, should it rise to match earnings in one spectacular year. The crash of 1929 is, be is not best thought of as a one- or two-day event, although the narrative usually suggests it was so. The combined October crash brought the Standard & Poor's Composite Index down only 21%, a fraction of the decline over the next couple of years, and this drop was half-reversed the next day, in Octo on October 30th, 1929. Overall, the closing S&P Composite Index dropped 86% from its peak close on September 7th of 1929 to its trough close on June 1st of 1932, over a period of less than three years. The October 1929 one-day drops are talked about most often, but much more noteworthy was the stock market's irregular but relentless decline, day after day, month after month, despite the protestations of businessmen and politicians who said that the economy was sound. This narrative was especially powerful in its suddenness and severity, focusing public attention on a crash as never before in America. Certainly, the October 1929 one-day drops set records, and records always make for good news stories. In addition, there was something about the timing of this story that caused an immediate and lasting public reaction. In his 1955 intellectual history of the 1930s, titled Part of Our Time, Some Ruins and Monuments of the Thirties, Murray Kempton wrote, quote, it is also hard to recreate that storm which passed over America in 1929, which conditioned the real history of the 1930s. This image of the American dream was flawed and cracked. Its critics had never sounded so persuasive. End quote. The storm was not fully unexpected. In October of 1928, during the presidential election campaign and a year before the 1929 crash, Alexander Dana Noyes, financial editor of the New York Times, wrote, quote, 
an observant traveler returning from a recent tour of the U.S., remarked that conversation on the trains and in hotel sitting rooms, after directing itself in a perfunctory way to the political campaign, would always turn with real animation to the stock market. Another testifies that even the conversation of women which um, women which he happened to overhear would sooner or later be absorbed in discussion of their favorite stocks. Something like this was observed in 1925, in 1920, and particularly in 1901. In respect, however, the present situation differs strikingly from all the others. On all these previous occasions, sober financiers, perhaps believing that some entirely new economic force has, had upset accepted precedent, kept silence, hesitating to predict collapse of the speculation. In this present season, on the contrary, conservative opinion has frankly and emphatically expressed the unfavorable view. In a, in a succession of utterances by individual financiers and at bankers' conferences, the prediction has been publicly made that the end of the speculative infatuation cannot be far off and that an inflated market is writing for a fall, end quote. Clearly, evidence of speculation was available to the public, which read about it in the news and talked about it on train cars. For example, in the year before its 1929 peak, the U.S. stock market's actual volatility was relatively low. But the implied volatility, reflecting interest rates and initial margin demanded by brokers on stock market margin loans, was exceptionally high suggesting that the brokers who offered margin loans were worried about a big decline in the stock market. So, the evidence was there in 1929 before the market peak, but it was controversial and inconclusive. A high price-to-earnings ratio for the stock market can predict a higher risk of stock market declines, but it is not like a professional weather forecast which indicates a dangerous storm is coming in a matter of hours. Most people will heed that kind of storm warning. However, in 1929, a great many people did not heed the warning communicated by the high price-to-earnings ratio. After the crash, many of them must have remembered the warnings and wondered why they had not listened. As figure 16.1 shows, the stock market crash narrative shot up with such strength in 1929 that it persists today, though more in books than in newspapers. The epidemic of stock market crash, which even today generally refers to 1929, seems to have begun weekly in 1926, several years before the actual crash of 1929, but it was not taken seriously. In newspapers, there were two fast epidemics, each peaking within a year, implying very strong short-run contagion. The first assumed massive proportions in 1929, with the record 12.8% one-day drop in the Dow Jones Industrial Average on October 28, 1929, and a further drop the next day. The second started on October 19th of 1987, when the Dow Jones experienced a 22.6% drop, almost double the percentage of the October 1929 drop, though falling short of the two-day drop in 1929. 
Apart from the 1987 drop, no other stock price movement since 1929 has been widely called a crash. Why? As we've seen, newspapers are very focused on records, presumably because their readers are, and 1987 was the only record one-day drop after 1929. Folklore suggests that the stock market epidemic generated extremely high contagion in 1929. We know there was high contagion in the days before October 19, 1987, too. Stories involving the news media and investors brought to mind and amplified the story of the 1929 crash. The 1987 crash appears to be a flashbulb memory event, see Chapter 7, like a sudden bombing attack, an automobile accident, or a declaration of war, and thus it is not easily forgotten. But after decades, its story no longer seems to fit into any lively narrative constellation, and hence, it is no longer virulent. The 1929 Suicide Narrative The October 28-29 of 1999 crash was another flashbulb memory event, one that may have been stronger than the 1987 event. The 1929 flashbulb memory is magnified partly by the stories of death associated with the crash. That is, stories abounded of business people committing suicide after the stock market crashed. There is some question whether the crash really led to these suicides, or whether writers learned that blaming business conditions for suicides just got a greater reaction from readers. In his best-selling 1955 book, the Great Crash, John Kenneth Galbraith argued that there, are, that there really weren't many more suicides after the crash, but there really were more narratives about suicides, with 28 such stories in ProQuest news and newspapers in November of 1929 alone. The principle of psychology, called the effect heuristic, discussed in Chapter 6, predicts that such narratives make people temporarily more fearful about everything. The narrative of death at the time of the 1929 crash was reinforced by many stories of people who were financially ruined by the crash and therefore had no reason to continue living. Two months after the crash, a newspaper article in the Louisville Courier Journal implored, quote, Don't shoot yourself. With amazement, I read of men who kill themselves at 50. The stock market has ruined them, but only financially. Have they not the same brains that made the money for them in the first place? End quote. In 1970, Studs Terkel published Hard Times, an oral history of the Great Depression, which was based on Terkel's interviews with people who were of retirement age when Terkel was researching the book in 1970. The interview reveals how the 1929 narrative had evolved, into the, had evolved in the interviewee's memory after 40 years. Suicide and 1929 came up frequently, along with embellishments and obvious exaggerations. One interviewee, Arthur Robert Robertson, the chairman of the board of a substantial company when Turkle interviewed him, was 31 years old in 1929. Robertson said, quote, October 29, 1929, yeah, a frenzy. I must have gotten calls from a dozen and a half friends who were desperate. In each case, there was no sense in loaning money because 
in loaning them the money that they would give to the broker. Tomorrow they'd be worse off than yesterday. Suicides left and right made a terrific impression on me, of course. People I knew. It was heartbreaking. One day you saw the prices at a hundred, and the next day at twenty or fifteen dollars. On Wall Street, the people walked like zombies. End quote. Nud Anderson, a painter and sculptor, recalled, quote, When the shock of losing what you had worked for comes, I found refuge in my art. To stew in a deplorable situation, where people were affected, come to some to suicide, I lost myself in my art. The pain that came with economic loss, I felt would pass. These things, like the eclipse of the sun, people first observed it and committed suicide, not realizing that this would pass. End quote. Julia Walther, the wife of a businessman in 1929, said, quote, When the crash came, the banks withdrew their support. Stock held on margin was called in. Fred, unable to meet this in the falling market, lost everything he had. He was completely wiped out. Fred always laughingly said, The only million dollars in my life I ever saw were those that I lost. I felt the fever period was unreal. And the depression was so real that it became unreal. There was a horror about it, with people jumping out of windows. End quote. The 1987 epidemic in figure 16.1 looks far stronger than the 1929 epidemic. The 1987 epidemic draws much of its strength from memories of 1929. Suicides were attributed to the 1987 crash, too. But these stories do not seem to have formed long-term memories, for a strong narrative did not develop, and there was no reinforcing story of depression after 1987. A 50% margin requirement in force in 1987, but not in 20, 1929, meant that, in the United States, many fewer people were wiped out or ruined by the 1987 crash than by the 1929 crash. Moral Narratives About 1929 how did the 1929 crash narr narrative achieve such strength? Ideas about morality may have played a role. The 1920s had been a time not only of economic superabundance, but also of chicanery, selfishness, and sexual liberation. Some critics viewed these aspects of the culture negatively, but they were unable to make a case against this putative immorality until the stock market crashed. Sermons preached on the Sunday after the crash, November 3rd of 1929, and talked about the crash, attributing it to moral and spiritual transgressions. The sermons helped frame Day of Judgment narratives about the Roaring Twenties. Google Engrams shows that the term Roaring Twenties was rarely used during the 1920s. Use of the term which sounds a bit judgmental, did not become common until the 1930s, when the broad moral storyline of the Great Depression gradually morphed into a national revulsion against the excesses and pathological confidence of the 1920s. Purveyors of morality likened the one-day event on October 28th of 1929 to a lightning bolt from heaven. Murray Kempton describes a narrative that began on the day of the 1929 crash, referring to the myth of the 1920s and the myth of the 1930s. Quote, the myth of the 20s had involved the search for individual expression, whether in beauty, laughter, or defiance of convention. 
All this was judged by the myth of the 30s as selfish and footling and egocentric. It did not seem proper at the time to say that the 20s were not quite so simple, and their values were mixed, some good and some bad, end quote. Thus, the stock market crash was viewed as a dividing line between the self-centered, self-deceiving 1920s and the intellectually and morally superior, albeit depressed, 1930s. Even today, the narrative notion that a stock market crash is a kind of divine punishment remains with us. Celebrities and the Shoeshine Boy Narrative One example of celebrity attachment to the 1929 crash narrative is the Shoeshine Boy Narrative of the late 1920s. In this narrative, a great man, either John Rockefeller or Bernard Barrick or Joseph Kennedy, all of them still celebrities today, Kennedy only because he was father of John F. Kennedy, who later became president of the U.S., decided to sell stocks before the peak in 1929 after a shoeshine boy offered him advice on investing in the stock market. Jody Chudley provided a version of this story in Business Insider in 2017. Quote, In 1929, JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., picked up one of those subtle signs and didn't just get out at the top, he scored a massive windfall on the way down as well. Like for virtually anyone invested in the stock market, the 1920s were good to Joseph Kennedy Sr. How could they not be? All you had to do was buy all the stock you could and watch it go up. After having made a bundle owning stocks in the roaring bull market of the 1920s, Joe Kennedy Sr. found himself needing to get his shoes polished. While sitting in the shoeshine chair, Kennedy Sr. was alarmed to have the shoeshine boy gift him with several tips on which stocks he should own. Yes, a shoeshine boy playing the stock market. This unsolicited advice resulted in a life-changing moment for Kennedy Sr., who promptly went back to his office and started unloading his stock portfolio. In fact, he didn't just get out of the market, he aggressively shorted it and got filthy rich because of it during the epic crash that soon followed. They don't ring bells at the top, but, but apparently, when shoeshine boys start giving stock advice, it is time to head for the exits. End quote. I could not, however, find evidence of this story in the ProQuest News and Newspapers database for the 1920s and 30s. The earliest mention I found of a shoeshine boy giving stock tips to rich and important men was in Bernard Barrick's 1957 memoirs, but even there the story is not exactly that of an epiphany at the moment that the shoeshine boy spoke. The shoeshine boy's story also has variants that mention boot blacks, barbers, or policemen as the stock tipper. For example, a 1915 article in the Minneapolis Morning Tribune argued that the advancing market was not about to turn down because, quote, we do not hear of the chambermaids and bootblacks who have cleaned up fortunes by lucky plays in the street. These romances usually mark the approach of the culmination of the advance, end quote. This 1915 narrative does not seem to have the moral force of the shoeshine boy narrative, for it is not connected to any catastrophic Armageddon event. It does not moralize as effectively, and it does not effectively tie the story to a celebrity. Relevance of the Stock Market Crash Narrative Today 
Though much time has passed since the 1929 crash, and much of the zeitgeist of the 1930s is lost to us now, the feeling lingers that the U.S. might experience another stock market crash. This continuing economic narrative is a lasting legacy of 1929, and it probably serves to amplify end-of-boom drops in the stock market and drops in confidence. Moreover, any awareness that some people frame their thinking in terms of such a narrative might lead to expectations that others will also display such amplifying reactions. As of this writing, in 2019, the stock market crash story is not contagious, but it remains a part of public thinking and might return with a mutation or change in the economic environment. Policymakers might take a lesson from both the real estate bubble narratives and the stock market crash narratives. During economic inflections, there is real analytical value to looking beyond the headlines and statistics. We should also consider that certain stories that recur with mutations play a significant role in our lives. Stories and legends from the past are scripts for the next boom or crash. The next two chapters describe economic narratives that differ from those we have covered so far in that they engender moral outrage and an impulse to fight back. In both chapters, we examine a dominant emotion of anger against business in chapter 17 and against labor in chapter 18. This anger may take a form that may cause significant changes in economic behavior. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.